Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Hey, uh, today we're talking about one of my most favorite passages of all time. And I want you to think about this. Has somebody ever prayed for you? Like, really, like, prayed for you. And I don't mean like the, you know, like, Southern church lady that's like, oh, I'll pray for you. Or even like, you know, oh, I'll pray for Johnny. You know, uh, he has mono, and you know what that means. Like, one of those kind of backwards, like, not really praying, but actually just saying gossip about you or something like that. Or uh, maybe even, like, the churchy way to end a conversation that you don't really know what to do with. You know, like, somebody's telling you some really, like, sad stuff, and you're like, well, okay. They gotta go. I'll pray for you. Cool. All right, bye. Right? Like, not like that, but like really, really, really prayed for you. <clears throat> there was this guy one time who, uh, he grew up in like North Africa. His name was Augustine. He went off to college. Uh, he was drinking, partying, chasing women, doing all the fun, crazy stuff college kids do, you know, staying up late and talking philosophy, checking out the gladiator games, that kind of stuff. Really just like living a wild life. Okay, so maybe some things have changed a little bit, but uh, he was just going nuts, right? Like living it up, uh, totally into the world, hanging out with those crazy Manichaeans and stuff like that. Until one day, out of the blue... He decided uh, there was actually a Bible, and it's funny the way that he tells it. They had like a gaming board in their room, maybe like an old school, you know, checkers board or something like that. And on it was sitting a Bible, and he's thinking like, well, or actually I think it was like book works of Paul or something like that. He's like, well, you know what? I, I might try that. I might read that. I might check that out. You know, a lot of people talk about it. I guess I'll give it a shot. From then on, uh, he started chasing after Jesus and fell madly in love with him and became uh, the person that we would come to know as St. Augustine. And uh, he would be one of the earliest church fathers. He would be one of the greatest Christian thinkers to ever live. Uh, we would name a town in Florida and about a million Catholic high schools after him. Like, uh, this was like a big deal. Now, that is really significantly less than half of the story. Because actually... Uh, If you read Augustine or Augustine and read what he says about his entire conversion experience, that whole scene that I just depicted for you was happening alongside a mother who was praying for him for years and years and years. See, the story actually starts where there was a lady named Monica uh, who got saved and uh, was just a quiet, uh, earnest follower of Jesus She was his mother, and, uh, you know, his father was kind of rich and cool and, like, paid for his schooling and stuff like that, so Augustine liked him a lot. His mother was always just kind of, like, you know, simple, and she was into this backwards thing called Christianity, and she's always praying for him and telling him the gospel, and he's like, ah, quiet down, Mom, right? And then uh, he goes off to school, and she actually, um, he starts, like, you know, getting jobs and stuff after finishing his training. She actually follows him across the sea, and she's chasing after him and constantly just sharing the good news with him, constantly just telling him what he ought to believe. She even goes so far, and this sounds like modern day like helicopter mom, right? She actually goes to this preacher in his town and uh, is like, hey, uh, my son's here in this town. Can you talk to him? Which I've actually played that game before. You know, sometimes when we go down to the south, uh, people are like, hey, uh, 
my daughter's in Denver, my granddaughter's in Denver, and uh, she's just living real, real wild. Can you talk to her? And I'm like, great, that's going to be a fun conversation where I'm like, hey, your grandma says you're wild and wants me to talk to you. I know how you were sitting around thinking, like, I wish a preacher that my grandma knows would come and talk to me, but here I am, right? So that's exactly what was happening with this guy. Uh, Monica actually gets this uh, bishop to go and talk to Augustine. He talks to him, and after a few minutes, he, or you know, however long, he comes back to Monica and he says, hey, he's not ready yet. He's still so much in love with all of the crazy stuff that he's into right now that there is no way that he is ready to hear this good news of Jesus. And Monica starts just arguing with him and going back and forth and pleading with him. Please, 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 I've been praying for my son all along. I have been uh, caring and uh, crying out to God on behalf of his soul for years and years and years and years. And maybe it was just to get her away from him. Uh, Maybe it was that he saw the pain that was in her eyes as she prayed for her son. But he actually looks at her, and this is how Augustine recounts it later. He says, leave me and go in peace. This is the bishop to the mom. It cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. Now, I don't really know like the theological implications of a statement like that. I don't really, you know, know how that exactly works out. I know that that's the kind of, like, power and the transformative power, and that actually ended up being prophetically true in Augustine's life of someone praying for someone else. See, Augustine looks back at his entire life, and he says, I would have been completely lost. I would have been completely dead, completely uh, lost to the world, whatever, however you want to look at it, were it not for the grace of God and the fervent prayers of my mother. I think if you've ever had anybody pray for you and really, really pray for you, you can kind of understand and appreciate that feeling, right? It's transformative. You know, even right now, uh, it's really cool. I wish and hope that maybe we can even keep this up after we're sort of a big boy church and not a church plant anymore. But right now, as a church plant, there are churches around the country and people around the country who, even in this very moment, are praying for you. Even in this very moment, probably prayed for you to safely get here, uh, prayed for us to be able to set up and not, you know, crash the trailer or anything like that, Uh, prayed for us to be warm, which we could ask for a few more prayers on, Uh, would be really nice. Uh, But right now, even in this moment, there are people praying for you as you go about living on mission for Jesus here in Denver. How cool is that? Now, uh, I think that's cool. But today we're actually going to see something that is significantly cooler than that in that Jesus actually prays for you. He takes one uh, final chapter right before he goes to his death. So the very next chapter we're launching into the whole death scenario, uh, Judas betrays him, and then we sort of, you know, go on from there. And he takes his last final sort of like addressing moments where it's just him and the disciples, and he actually prays for them. And... Verse 20 that we're going to get to a little bit later, Jesus actually says, hey, uh, it's not just for these who are right in front of me, but it's actually for uh, everyone who will hear because of their word. Which if you think about it, someone heard their word and heard their word and heard their word all the way until you. You are someone who is blessed and who is, uh, who is able to understand who Jesus is because of the word of his followers. This prayer today, this John chapter 17, is actually for you. So what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to just 
kick back and geek out on it a little bit. I'm going to try and be brief since I know that you're freezing, but I can't because it's a million verses and they're all beautiful and I have to be committed to it. I'm sorry. So uh, grab an extra blanket if you need one. We're going to roll into this and it's going to be awesome. Now, uh, just as a little exegetical note, the little chapter headings that are in the text, those are not actually uh, native to the Bible. They're added much later. Uh, by people who are Bible scholars, and so maybe even like I think 400, 500, I don't have the date there, so don't worry about it. Anyway, uh, use them because they're pretty helpful, but they're also not scripture that you need to live and die on. Uh, They actually probably say in your Bible right there, the uh, high priestly prayer. And that is kind of what this is. So Jesus actually steps into a role of being the high priest for all of mankind and prays over humanity as the high priest. D.A. Carson says this. He says, the designation is not unfitting, the designation of high priestly prayer, or high priestly prayer, uh, inasmuch as Jesus prays for others in a distinctly mediatorial way. A priestly task. So he actually, Jesus, steps in this moment as mediator between God and man. But I think that title is actually a little bit lacking. It says the high priestly prayer. I think in some ways it might should be like the last and greatest high priestly prayer. Because if you think about it, this is like the very singular last moment when a priest is actually even necessary. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, priests the way that like modern churches may use it, but in the sense that the Old Testament looked at a priest as a go-between between people and God, this was the last possible moment in all of human history when that was even necessary. And who gives this final high priestly prayer, the highest of all priestly prayers, but God himself, but not just God himself, but God incarnate himself. So the person who's going to be a speaker between humanity and God is going to be the one person who is both of those things, right? Like God stepping down and living for 30-something years here on earth and then stepping up and saying between the people he is looking at immediately in front of him and the God that he is intimately in connection with as part of the Trinity, he mediates between those two. And in this, this is the last final moment. In fact, uh, not very much longer, a matter of hours from this very moment, the veil that stands between the Holy of Holies, the place where only the priest could go and talk to God, and the outer temple where everyone else could go, the veil would be torn in half, showing that no longer does humanity need a priest to go in between them. Jesus has actually bridged that gap with his death on the cross. And so listen to this now as we sort of walk through this with this understanding, both that there's like a a double meaning here, one in the sense that Jesus is going out of his way very much like anyone who's ever prayed for you and praying for you, praying over you, crying out to God on your behalf. And then also recognize that as the great high priest, he is standing between you and God so that that gap between the two of you may no longer exist. So we're going to run through all of it, and it's going to be fantastic. Here we go. This is what Jesus prayed for you. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
The time has come. He knows it. He knows that it's coming. He can feel that the end is near. And he asks God to bring glory to him in this moment so that the glory may actually be then turned back to God. Here Jesus sort of captures this odd attitude that he has going into this. He knows that it is the most glorious moment in all of human history. And he also knows that it is going to hurt a lot. Still, he walks into it and all he asks is, Glorify the Son so that it may glorify you, Father. Verse 2 says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's good stuff. Now remember, eternal life is still the goal here. There's been a big precedent among Christianity right now to sort of like uh, push harder to recognize that we do have a role here on earth, and I think that's wonderful. Uh, For a while, Christianity had been skewing towards this idea of like, you know, we're so focused on heaven that we're no earthly good or something like that, right? Like all we're doing is just sort of biding our time until Jesus takes away so it doesn't matter what happens to the earth or people around us, and that is not at all how God and Jesus here in Scripture actually looks at the world. But remember, too, that eternal life is still the target. It is still the best and most wonderful thing that, that, that we can possibly achieve. And we get really fixated on these pictures of heaven that we see, uh, both in scripture and in, uh, in popular culture, right? Like uh, there was that book a few years ago where some kid dies and he spends a few minutes in heaven and then comes back to tell us all about it and stuff like that. Like, and we get really like intrigued by that because it's like, well, what does it look like? What do you do? What do you, uh, what do you get? And we have these images of like hanging out on clouds or streets of gold or flowing rivers of milk and honey or whatever that actually looks like to you. But here Jesus defines it in probably a simpler way and also a more perfect way. He says, I pray that these people might have eternal life. And what does that mean? Knowing God. Knowing God fully is the eternal life that we were always meant to have. No longer having these barriers between us, no longer having all of these things that are standing between God and us, but actually knowing him fully, even as we are fully known by him. That is the true eternal life that we should be seeking. Intimacy with God is the goal. Not any sort of, you know, earthly seeming reward. Because at the end of the day, if the streets are gold and I have like, you know, a mansion and I get to ride around in a Ferrari and I have every pair of sneakers I've ever wanted and they actually have little wings on them like Hermes and I can like float around like that kind of thing. If that all happens, that would be really, really great for like a month, right? And then at the end of the day, I get bored of that. Like, imagine if you just had every single thing that you wanted, like you're living straight up Richie Rich style, I guess. Uh, I know that's a little bit of a dated reference, but I think you understand what I mean. Uh, You just have every single thing that you could possibly want on the planet. How long can that truly satisfy? I mean, if it was like perfectly and completely everything you wanted, you're still not going to just be fully satisfied for, I don't know, a month, two months, three months. Intimacy with God is the actual goal. He already knows us more deeply and more intimately than we can ever know ourselves, and one day we will know him. 
Jesus says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This sounds like a great feeling. He's like, I did what you, what you called me to do. It kind of feels like old people, uh, you know, like in movies or something like that, where they're lying there and they're like, you know what? I'm ready to go. They're like on the deathbed and they're like, I have done what I wanted to do. And it's something that like, I feel like young people just fully cannot understand. They're like, no, 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 we'll keep you lo- alive longer. We'll just, you know, hang on to you as much as we can. And they're like, you know what? I've did it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, I glorified you on earth. Verse 5 says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now watch, there's a transition here in between 5 and 6, because then he goes on in 6 to say, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they kept your word. It's a really hard transition. He goes from praying for himself and about himself and what he's going to do to praying for his disciples. So really, this whole chapter is breaking up, broken up into three different chunks. The first chunk, Jesus prays for himself that he might glorify the Father and what he's about to do. The second chunk, he prays for his disciples, uh, for what they might do. And then uh, the last chunk, he prays for the rest of Christianity that will come throughout all of history. Uh, Verse 7 says this, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them. And I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they believed you sent me. This is kind of feeling like Jesus is saying to God in front of his disciples, it worked. They got, they got a hold of it. Like, I have given you the word, or given them the words that you have given to me, and they have taken hold of it. They understand. Uh, now, someone else has the story that you are telling throughout all of human history. Now, this story lives on even after I am going to die, which is kind of an interesting little, like, note. Jesus is saying, uh, not that, like, you know, I gave them, like, the proper formula so they might know what to say, but basically, like, all the words that I have been saying now they have in and of themselves. And four of them would then go on to write their own books about it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so that they might pass on this story to others. And none of them leave this uh, you know, task of writing a gospel saying, I wrote down every single thing that Jesus ever said. In fact, John said at the end of his gospel that we'll get to uh, here in a couple months, he gets to the end and he says, actually, uh, there is not enough room in all of the books on the planet to fill or uh, to hold all of the things that Jesus has said to us. So that means it's not necessarily like the actual, you know, like, no sort of like formula that he's creating. It's not the actual words or any sort of like secret knowledge that he's giving. What he's saying is like my life that I lived out in front of these 12 men is now going to live on, is now going to go into the rest of the world through them. They have my words, mission accomplished. They have my story. They understand what you are weaving throughout all of human history and how it reaches its climax in me. And now they are going to be able to pass it on. It's interesting that God works in story, right? Like we have a lot of questions about the Old Testament a lot of times and and how it relates with the new and how everything fits together. And, you know, uh, I almost have this question of like, okay, so Adam and Eve sinned. Why is it the next story like that Jesus comes? You know, like wouldn't that kind of make more sense or like a different type of timeline uh, if this was always the goal? But what if the goal, in fact, was actually 
that God was weaving a story. Why is it, in fact, that you and I love stories so much? Why are we as human beings that he created made to be in love with such stories? And then why throughout the New Testament, I mean, throughout the Bible and then throughout even the course of human history, can we look back and see that God is weaving a story throughout the entire thing? I think it tells us something really important about ourselves, tells us something really important about the God that we serve. That ultimately he is crafting something beautiful, more beautiful than simple words, uh, more beautiful than some sort of, uh, you know, nonfiction kind of textbook thing. He's actually crafting a story. And Jesus is saying now, thank you, God, that my part in this story is completed. Now, thank you that you have given my words, my story, my life to these people to carry on to others. Verse 9 says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus goes out of his way to point out an exclusivity here. I am praying for our followers, God, not for everyone. Christianity has an us and them element to it. There's no sort of like workaround to that. It's really, really difficult to read very much of Jesus at all and then come away being like, well, I think he meant that all religions are valid. I think he meant that any sort of belief system that you have is probably good. I think he meant that all people are, you know, going to end up basically the same place or the same way. Uh, I think he meant that like everybody can, you know, climb different roads up to one mountain or, or whatever it is. It's very, very difficult I think, to reconcile that with the actual words of Jesus. Jesus goes out of his way here to say, I am praying for these people, not those people. I am praying for the people who are following after me and not for the rest of the world. This is something that's going to get more and more difficult, I think, to defend as Christians in the modern world. The exclusivity of Jesus is something that you're either going to be confronted with or something that you are going to cave on. That's kind of the only two options. If you're having conversations with people who are not followers of Jesus, uh, this is going to be a hang-up, and this is going to be something uh, that you are either going to have to say, yes, Jesus is uh, exclusive, or you are going to have to find fancy theological ways to sort of work around. I like to think of it like God is a good father, And you think about like a father to like a classroom of kids, like when I go to maybe like gymnastics class with Evie or something like that, I'm watching all the kids. And of course I'm doing that because, you know, odds are if you're watching enough children, one of them's going to like do, you know, a front dive onto a balance beam or something like that. And it's going to be kind of funny. Like you're watching all these other kids. You're even proud when her little friends do something cool. You're watching all of them, but I am not watching any of them the way I'm watching Evie. There's a totally different thing in loving everyone, which I believe Jesus did in a way that we can't even fully grasp, and also loving even more than that the people who are his followers, the people who are his. His children are separate. They are distinct in his mind and in his heart from all others. Verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
It's interesting here uh, in Jesus' final moments, in his mind, he's sort of already gone. He's already made his departure from the world. He spent his time here. He's had his incarnation among us, but now he is going back to the Father. But his people are still here. Hang on to that. More on that later. Verse 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. The scripture might be fulfilled. While he was here, he kept his people in God's name, meaning under the sort of umbrella of protection of who God is and sort of under uh, his identity. All of them except for the son of destruction, Judas, which is, you know, like sounds like this hardcore, like heavy metal band name or something like that, son of destruction. He goes out of his way right now uh, to remind his disciples, who were probably already begin to freak out at all the weird stuff Jesus is saying, that the one who betrayed them was actually a part of God's plan, that the son of destruction was something that was foretold in Scripture. He's saying that the Scripture would be fulfilled by the son of destruction actually coming in and uh, betraying Jesus, which is about to happen in the very next scene. It's also really interesting here, uh, and I think this is just a really cool and beautiful note uh, coming out of something really negative and dark. He refers to Judas as the son of destruction. You know, for God, uh, we don't usually think of like something being like good or something being destructive. Like that's not the foil for good, right? But for God, all of these things are wrapped up into one. Something is true, something is good, something is beautiful. We have like different categories for each of those things. For God, those are all the exact same thing. When something is true, it is beautiful. When something is good, it is true. For God, these are not distinctives that he puts between it. And so things like decay and rot and destruction and the breaking down, the the disorderliness of creation is all a part of the brokenness that was introduced with sin. So Judas isn't just the son of evil, he's the son of destruction. And in so being, he is opposed to God. He is against what God has planned. Verse 13 says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is all, everything Jesus is saying right now, to have the joy fulfilled within his disciples. Not that they would be happy, uh, but that their joy, or his joy, would be fulfilled in them. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to you, God, and I am praying this over them so that they might have the joy that they have been promised. That joy would be fulfilled. Maybe even the joy uh, that they know is possible deep within their soul. Now, I want you to think about this, and you have to follow this analogy really closely because it's a little sticky. But have you ever had a perfect blueberry? No, because they don't exist, right? Like, are are you not like you pop a blueberry in your mouth and you're like a little bit disappointed? Like you're like, ah, well, this one's not ripe enough. This one's overripe. This one's a little bit grainy. Why is it green on the inside? Like all of these questions. Like I don't think anyone has ever popped one blueberry in their mouth and been like, wow, this is exactly what a blueberry was always meant to be like, right? Like this rapturous experience of finding the perfect blueberry. You know why that's frustrating? Because we've had so many bad blueberries, but there's something in our mind that tells us that they should be more. 
right? Like we have this like, you know, alpha prime blueberry in our mind that's like, this is what a blueberry is supposed to taste like. I've tasted a bunch of elements of this, you know? If we could just get them all into one blueberry where it's like perfectly sweet but not too sweet, where the texture is just exactly what it's supposed to be, uh, where the color is just so pleasing, whatever it needs to be, like all of these things wrapped up into one. Like in our mind, there's this perfect blueberry, or at least for me, to make all other blueberries lacking. This imaginary blueberry that doesn't even really exist probably out there shows me in my mind why this blueberry I'm currently eating is not as good. I believe that we have that for joy. I believe in our hearts, like hardwired from the very creation of the world, God showed us what joy is supposed to feel like. The, the experience of Adam and Eve being able to walk around the garden, to be in perfect connection with God, uh, to know him so intimately the way that we will in eternal life, that's the joy that we know we have the capacity to feel. The joy that we know is somewhere out there for us to be experiencing. Jesus is saying not that joy will come to them, but their joy will be fulfilled in, them, in themselves. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15 is crucially important. Jesus very intentionally says, I'm not taking them out of the world. I'm not asking you, God, to take them out of the world. I'm saying I am keeping them here, but I am asking that you keep them from the evil one. I feel like very often as Christians, we try and uh, fix this statement for ourselves. We say, like, Jesus, you didn't take us out of the world, uh, but we're going to try and take ourselves out of the world and put ourselves over here. Uh, we're going to create our own, uh, you know, series of books. We're going to create our own radio stations. We're going to create our own schools. We're going to create our own, like, uh, T-shirt lines. I don't know, like clothing and apparel and stuff like that. Like, it's just wild how many, like, you know, clothing companies are intended like Christian companies so that we can clothe ourselves differently from the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily bad. In fact, I think there's a lot of merit to a lot of those things. But what I am saying is if the intention is to take ourselves out of the world in some way, then aren't we working against the very words of Jesus? Jesus is like, hey, God, don't take them out of the world. And we're like, cool, we got that one, Thanks right? Like how strange is that for Jesus to make this statement, not just to God, his father, but also in front of his disciples so that they may know. So he can say, Hey, uh, I don't want you to take them out of the world. There's a lot of decisions that come from this. There's no sort of like cut and dry what exactly this looks like. Like if you uh, wanted to be fully immersed in the world, you might find like the worst place you can possibly imagine and then just like move in there, you know? And then if you wanted to be fully taken out of the world, you'd live in some sort of like creepy cult commune thing out in the middle of nowhere. Like, and obviously none of you have chosen to do that. But there are millions of micro decisions that we make every single day that keep us in the world or out of it. And it's a thing that you'll have to constantly be deciding because the world keeps on changing. What does this mean 
in a world of like shopping on the internet? What does this mean in a world of social media? What does this mean in regards to CRISPR babies or the coronavirus? Like, I don't even know. Like, there's just millions and millions of ways that we constantly have to decide just how much do we want to be in the world. But here's what I want you to do as like a litmus test for every single decision that you make. Ask yourself, are you trying to take yourself out of the world with this decision? Is what you're doing trying to avoid some of the natural hardship and difficulty and challenge that is a part of the world that Jesus promised that there would be? For us, for Sarah and I, we've decided that we're going to do things that put us in close contact with people who don't believe in Jesus. Now, most naturally, I would like to just hang out with you guys all the time. I would like to, uh, you know, be able to just uh, hide away from the rest of the world. I would like to be able to even protect Evie from things that I think are like dark and scary in the world. And sure, we're going to do that a little bit and, and to certain degrees. Like we are responsible for her, but we also want to show her what it looks like to live in a world and to live in relationship with people who don't know Jesus. We have decided that we are going to seek out meaningful and long-term relationships with non-believers who are our neighbors, who are our friends, who are the people that are around us. We've decided that we are going to confront ourselves and confront Evie with people who are different than her. We've decided uh, that we are going to even like put ourselves in more difficult situations, uh, put ourselves in challenging places when we feel like God is calling us to be there. Things that uh, on the outside look like they would be harmful for our family. Living somewhere else, uh, maybe even somewhere where there are more Christians, is something that we could do that would be cheaper, that would be easier, that would be more comfortable for us. Uh, We could be right next to my mom and dad and have all that free babysitting that people talk about like that all sounds fantastic and yet we are choosing to be in the world because this is where we believe God has called us to reach people who don't know Jesus I'm not saying that to uh, pretend that we're some sort of like you know super saintly family and we definitely don't even do this as much as we should be doing but here's the thing At the end of the day, you've got to be able to look at every single decision that you make and ask yourself, is this something that I am doing to try and hide away, to keep away, uh, to get away from the world, and thus working against the very prayer that Jesus prayed for you, or is this what God is actually calling me to do? Jesus follows it up with something that should be more uh, assuring, something that should be more comfortable than any level of like Christian seclusion ever could be. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Imagine that. Being able to walk through the world and having the evil one's uh, attacks, having his movements against you, being repelled. This is what Jesus is praying for you, that you would be in the world, but be protected from the evil one. Verse 17 says this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus asks that we would be sanctified in the truth. Now, that word sanctify is from like the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. To sanctify something is to make it holy, uh, to consecrate it, to set it apart. So you can imagine like as they're preparing something like a knife uh, to be used in like a sacrificial, you know, animal sacrifice or something like that. uh, What they would do is they'd go through all of these different rituals. They would go through all of this washing, all of this preparing, all of this cleansing. And Jesus is saying that that very same thing thing is happening to you in the truth of his word. That is something that cleans you, something that purifies you, something that makes you ready for the task at hand. Jesus says, sanctify them in your word, and I have sent them into the world. You are to be cleaned, you are to be made ready, you are to be prepared by the truth of who God is, by the truth of scripture, so that you might go out into the world. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, there are a lot of parts of the Bible where you have to make this sort of deliberation and decision like, oh, is this for me or was this for them culturally back then? Uh, Was this just for the people that Paul or the disciples were talking to or is it for everybody? This is not one of those parts. This is a pretty easy one, right? Like uh, not for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. That is you. There's not been much in scripture that's written more directly about you. You are someone who... uh, thousands of years later are going to believe through the word of these disciples. It's a long chain that starts around like 30 AD with these 11 dudes that Jesus is talking to that gets spread from one person to another person to another person to another person through their word And someone who would tell someone who would tell someone who would tell someone and then maybe a million someones later until it actually arrives right at you. And then we get to continue to be a part of this chain. We get to be a part of this through someone else. And so carrying on this prayer of Jesus that he prays around 30 AD into uh, the next generation even after us. This ought to cause us to think a little bit about like who's your one, which is something that we say a lot around here. It's language that we use, and basically it's just this idea that uh, we believe that there's at least one person in your life that God has put there so that you might be able to share the good news of Jesus with them. There's probably more than that, but at least there is one that maybe even right now you're thinking of that maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, uh, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, whatever that actually is for you. We believe that God has placed someone in your life so that this chain does not end with you. So that from 30 AD to 2020 is not the length of that chain, that it's going to continue on into generations and generations after you. And what's really cool is, if you think about it, Jesus knows exactly who he's praying for here. Jesus knows exactly who he's talking about. How strangely amazing is it that that person, that one that you have, that person that you love very much, that you care about, 
that you share the gospel with or that you want to share the gospel with, that could be a person that Jesus is praying for right here in this very passage. In fact, odds are if you start praying for this person, you won't be the first person who's ever prayed for them. Verse 21 says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prays that through the love and the oneness that the world might know that we are sent by God. Jesus is praying that you, being so intimately connected with God, so connected with Jesus, who is connected with God, that all of that might swirl together in oneness and connection so that when people look at you, they are able to see that you are connected with God, that you are one with God. In fact, the term Christians, uh, which actually wasn't invented by Christians, it was invented by other people. We see this story in the book of Acts. It actually means little Christs, right? So imagine uh, the people of God are actually living out their life. Uh, they would call themselves followers of the way, or maybe even more simply just brother and sister. And they would uh, be out there living out their lives. And people were standing around watching them and saying like, what's up with those guys? Oh, well, those guys are little Christs. Right, like uh, they're acting like this weird guy Christ uh, that was alive over in Israel, and then they crucified him. But these guys are following after them. Oh, what should we call them? We call them little Christs. They're just the little Christs out there. It's astounding here uh, that Jesus is actually praying for that to happen. He's saying, "I want my people to be one with me, just as I am one with you, the Father." Finally, he concludes it like this. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I like that there. Jesus knows he is walking to his death, but he also knows he's walking to his resurrection. He says, I have made known your name to them and I will continue to make it known. And he closes this entire thing with something that Jesus has been talking about this entire book, his entire life that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's saying that we, by experiencing the love of the Father, by experiencing love of Jesus, might actually know God, that that, that God might actually live within us through the transforming power of his love. Jesus prays here that we would know that we are loved 
by God, that we would know it at the very core of who we are, that the love that he understands as given to him from the Father would be what we would understand and experience as given to us by Jesus. And from this prayer, as he sort of says, Amen, he knows he's looking at his own death. He's approaching that moment when his love for us would become manifest in the most perfect and holy and complete way possible. And Jesus closes this prayer, not with some sort of rousing speech, uh, not even with uh, fear or disappointment or frustration walking to his own death. Jesus closes this prayer saying, and I wish, I wish, I ask of you, Heavenly Father, that these people would know your love, that it would be made complete, that it would be fulfilled within them so that we might be all together as one, united in the love of God. It's not a simple verb. It's not a feeling. It's not uh, something that we just sort of like, you know, experience about some things and not about others. This is something that is transformative. This love of God is what unites and binds us uh, as followers of Jesus all across all of human history. uh, People chasing after God are rooted and grounded in his love. And Jesus' climax, his conclusion to this entire prayer is that we might be able to experience that love. That the love with which the Father loves the Son may be in us. And that Jesus himself may be in us. We're going to transition to a time of communion now. And in so doing, we have an opportunity to physically experience what Jesus is talking about. Now, I don't think that this, you know, like magically transforms to like love within you or anything like that. But what it does do is gives you an opportunity to remind yourself of the great love that Jesus has for us. The same love that the Father loves Jesus with, Jesus actually loved you with, and that's what he gave his life for on the cross. So take the body symbolized by the bread that was broken for you and dip it in the juice or the wine that symbolizes the blood that was shed for you. And in this moment, know that if you are a follower of Jesus, that he is in you, that his love has made its home in you, that has been made manifest in your life through his sacrifice, through his death, through his burial and resurrection for you. Can I pray for you? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you prayed for us God, that you spent your last few moments on earth not giving us uh, marching orders, not uh, telling us your last final things, God, but actually praying over your people, over your disciples immediately, but all your people throughout all of history. God, we thank you that you pray for us. 
God, is there no limit to what you have done for us? God, we come bearing nothing, and you come, and it's not enough that you saved us. It's not enough that you even lived among us for years, God. It's not enough that you died on the cross when that should have been our death. That should have been our uh, uh, suffering, our our righteously earned guilt, God, our our pain that we should be bringing on ourselves, God. You took all of that on yourself, and then... Right in the middle of all of this, God, you stop and you pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring about us enough to pray for us, God. Thank you for, thank you for giving everything you had for us, God. Let us fully understand and experience beautiful gift that you have given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.